You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello. Uh, this is the, uh, the end of the semester, so, uh, so excited to have this uh, conversation. Uh, Barack Richmond's book, Stateless Commerce, is um, out here. It's a fantastic uh, book. Barack is a uh, professor of uh, law and business enterprise at the Duke uh, University School of Law. Um, this work uh, and the conversation that is going to uh, be around it here today um, is a foundational work in the theory of governance and in political economy of everyday life. Um, we uh, have two outstanding discussants uh, to uh, uh, address the book. Uh, David Scarbeck, who's a professor of political science at um, Brown University, and Pete Leeson, uh, here is a professor of law and economics uh, here at George Mason University. Um, and one of the things that I want to sort of stress is before we get started, the normal format will follow. Barack will have 20 minutes, then David, and then Pete 15 minutes each, and then open Q&A unless they want to have some response back to one another as well. But I also want to sort of point out something, especially to the graduate students here, not that you don't know this, but just to reinforce it, uh, one of the reasons why this conversation is so fascinating, in addition to the fact that Barack's book is just so rich um, in analysis and in details um, is the fact that it reflects very much the kind of ongoing research program that has been going on at George Mason University since 2000 um, that's focused on issues of governance and especially private and community governance as opposed to the exclusively state governance uh, kind of idea. Um, and David and Pete are outstanding representatives of that research. Um, I just got done telling Pete I was going to give him short shrift because I had to figure out some way to also talk about myself uh, during this. And uh, so, uh, you know, one of, one of the first papers that Pete did on this is a paper with me on is the transition to the market too important to be left to the market about how it is that the uh, endogenous rule formation rather than the idea of an exogenous rule establisher is important. And of course, David uh, burst onto the scene with let's put the con into uh, constitutions um, and set in motion of various analytical uh, advances and deep historical scholarship on mechanisms of the experience of governance. So the whole point of covenants without swords and ultimately cooperation without command um, and these kind of ideas. So, so we're thrilled to have Barack, Pete, and David uh, with us today to, and look forward to this great conversation. Um, as I said, please uh, congratulate and welcome Barack Richmond, uh, the author of Stateless Commerce, and you have 20 minutes. So. Um, so I guess two things. First of all, it is a, a real honor to be here, um, and it's also a special honor to Part, be part of a conversation with Pete and David, two scholars who I have enormous respect for and admiration for. Um, and I think it also is especially meaningful to have the conversation here 
um, and frankly with these two quotes also, um, because uh, at least what I have tried to, to do with the book is very much uh, consistent with the motivation of why George Mason has this PhD program. It really is an effort um, to push beyond conventional thinking, to try to uh, incorporate uh, theories from multiple different fields, and to cry, try to great, or generate some kind of community of scholars um, that think about the kinds of institutions and relationships that have formed the modern economy. Um, I think it's intellectually incredibly important and wildly exciting stuff. Um, so it's, a, it's terrific to be here, surrounded by uh, people I admire uh, and people with whom I, I, I think I share um, a lot of academic aspirations. So uh, I'm not going to use 20 minutes. I'm going to use far less. Uh, I will reserve my time for comments afterwards for my retort, my rebuttal. That's what lawyers say. Um, but also, uh, I, I, I think both Pete and, and David might also not use all their time. We'll really try to come up with a, a, a conversation that will invite your participation. Um, and maybe we can even find things to disagree about and really go at each other. That's always kind of fun. Um, the, mo the majority of my time, I'm going to use showing this video. Uh, I'm showing it for two reasons. One, it was produced by my 12-year-old, and I'm very proud of it. But the other reason is that what brought me to this topic, um, I think, can best be described or presented um, through a multi multimedia format. Um, so without any additional introduction, I'm just going to show the video, and then we'll, and then I'll just have a couple comments to say. Visit Midtown Manhattan. You might stroll down Fifth Avenue and witness one of the most cosmopolitan retail centers in the world. You might also stroll down Sixth Avenue. The whole video is just two and a half minutes, so we're not going to International bank offices and other heights of today's modern commerce. But if you wander from 5th to 6th along 47th Street, crossing from high fashion to high finance, you'll find yourself in what looks like an ancient barter economy. New York's 47th Street is the epicenter of America's diamond industry. And to the visitor, it might feel like a time bubble. Instead of midtown stylish shoppers and elegant business people, pedestrians on 47th Street are cross-section of global economy with different ethnicities, languages, and energies unfurled in the street. Business is organized around family and community networks, and disputes are resolved privately without relying on courts or legal enforcement. This insular commercial world is explored in Barack Richmond's new book, Stateless Commerce, The Diamond Network and the Persistence of Relational Exchange. It delves into the world of diamonds and asks how millions of dollars worth of diamonds can be transacted each day without formal contracts and law enforcement. It then uses the mystery of the diamond industry to ask broader questions. Conventional theory shared by policymakers, economic historians, and all shades of academics says that modern legal institutions are necessary components in the path of prosperity. Why then, in spite of rejecting the very institutions that received credit for building modern economy development, do ethnic commercial networks still dominate certain industries well into the 21st century? Alternatively, if certain ethnic economic networks thrive in modern economy, why do they not dominate a larger portion of modern talks? 
This book explains why and how ethnic networks succeed where the instruments of modern commerce fail. And it teaches that ethnic commercial networks encounter their own troubles. And so, while modern and pre-modern economies live side by side in 21st century New York City, they also compete with and consume each other. So, there are a couple things I really like about that video. Um, each other. I'm just going to... I want to, I want to, I want to... Century New York City. There, I want to hold... This is, this is the image I want to hold up there. Um, so there are a number of things I really like about this video. Um, number one, it really captures what initially got me curious about this topic. You walk down 47th Street in New York. Um, this is 47th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. And it's different. It essentially... Uh, on multiple levels, you know that something different is going on there than what's going on in the rest of Manhattan. Um, you see different players, you see a different kind of uh, different languages, different levels and types of activity in the street. Um, this is a very different kind of economy, relying on very different kinds of economic organizations from the rest of Manhattan, really even just from Fifth Avenue and Sixth Avenue. Um, and I like this picture especially. This, this reminds me of the famous Coase article in 1960 uh, that, that describes um, relationships or you might say uh, the, the contracting relationships between the rancher and the farmer. You have in the Coase article, you have the rancher and the farmer engaged in two very different economic activities. Each one somewhat encroaches upon the other. And they work it out. And the border that demarcates one form of economy, one enterprise from the other, is privately negotiated. And that's really what you see here in New York. You see two different economies living side by side. And the question I ask is, first of all, why are they both there? And secondly, why are they represented the way they are? Why is there a border? Um, and why is the border where it is? Um, so. Maybe the first question I'll very briefly answer is, why is it there? Um, why does 47th Street look so different? Um, and the simple answer, and this is something that everybody in this room knows very well, is that uh, there is a different governance structure. The thing that motivates the diamond industry's governance structure is as simple as the difficulty of the diamond itself. The diamond, sometimes I bring a prop. The diamond you can put in your pocket, <laughs> and you can take it anywhere. And because of that very simple observation, um, it is extraordinarily difficult to contract for it. When I give you a diamond with a contract where you promise to pay me in the future, it's the simplest of all financial arrangements, but it's something that a modern court cannot enforce. You can take that diamond anywhere. You might, I might be able to get whatever assets you leave behind, but the whole idea behind diamonds is that it's liquid, and all of your assets are in diamonds, and you can take it anywhere. And therefore, um, the instruments that the modern economy has used to govern credit sales or time and consistent exchange are ineffective. And that, it illustrates how dependent we have become on those kinds of mechanisms. Um, we buy cars, we buy businesses, we purchase houses. Um, all of these are on financial instruments where the, the instrument attaches something that is 
tangible and very hard to take away. Um, and if you think, you know, I, I, I gave a talk on Cyber Monday, um, and it occurred to me that when you make a purchase on Amazon, um, there are a number of different transactions that you've triggered. All of them have been secured by these traditional mechanisms. All of them have been secured by some financial intermediary with some kind of contract. Everything is backed by some kind of asset that is easily identifiable. And this network of transactions that you have triggered by pushing the purchase button um, are both numerous and fairly well, uh, fairly effectively governed, but not so with diamonds. So everything that we have come to rely upon in our modern commerce does not help with the diamond industry. And for that reason, um, it relies on a different kind of governance mechanism. And the book goes into some detail uh, about how we have individuals, um, uh, families, members of an ethnic community that use non-economic sanctions, uh, that use uh, connections that secure long-term economic benefits, that serve as the sanctions or the instruments of enforcement that secure credit sales in the diamond industry. These are mechanisms that you're all familiar with. These are mechanisms both David and Pete have gone into great detail in their work as well. Um, and uh, the world that I uncover in the diamond industry is wildly fascinating, but in that sense, not terribly new. The more interesting part of the book, I think, is thinking about the implications of what it means to have this pocket of commerce governed by these pre-legal mechanisms for enforcement, the kind of mechanisms that Pete finds in the world of pirates and that Dave finds in the world of prisoners. Um, and you see it in New York where there are lots of lawyers and lots of courts and there is an industry-wide collective decision to reject them all. Um, that's, I think, where the real contribution of the book is. And in that sense, we have these two different kinds of economic organizations. And if you examine them through the lens of institutional economics, you find that each one exhibits certain comparative efficiencies over the other and exhibits certain inefficiencies compared to the other. And the key insight is simply trying to understand how an individual transaction or how an individual pocket of commerce um, exhibit certain institutional needs, and which of these two templates best meets those institutional needs from an economizing perspective. And in that sense, we see in one world with multiple different governance options, we see a certain separation equilibrium. Um, the normative takeaway from this book, I think, is recognizing that this is the world that we all think of as progress. And we should interpret the persistence of that world as a critique on this world. Um, the rise of state-sponsored of state courts uh, and their capacity to facilitate what's called impersonal exchange, exchange between strangers, is indeed a remarkably significant, important, and valuable development in the modern world, in economic history. But it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, exhibit certain inefficiencies, certain incapacities that private governance remains superior for. Um, and when we think of a world like New York that has lots of different pockets of commerce, different kinds of commerce and different kinds of transactors, we have to view it for in a pluralistic world. We have to understand that different kinds of economic mechanisms serve different purposes and have different effects in different places. Um, and if you can come up with a theory that explains institutional pluralism um, and understand the, per 
the continued value of spontaneous and informal governance, stateless governance, um, then not only do you see the real efficiencies of private governance, but you also see the certain inefficiencies of the state. And both of those are really valuable critiques. I might even say that there are critiques that are, um, uh, that go against the headwinds of a lot of contemporary policy and contemporary ac academia. Um, so uh, without any further ado, I'll say that, look, I'm delighted to talk about this substantively, but the other part I just want to leave you with is what I began with. This is a wildly fascinating world. Um, you go to 47th Street and your senses are stimulated in multiple different dimensions. Um, and maybe a little piece of advice to the graduate students is, if you're gonna spend your life studying something, make sure it's interesting. <laughs> make sure it just, it, 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 it sparks your curiosity and it's something that you're excited to talk about. Um, and even if your curiosity leads you to questions you can't answer, that doesn't mean that the questions aren't valid. This is a very mysterious world. I think I've tried to explain it as best I can, why it operates the way it does and why it persists in the 21st century, but there's still a lot of questions and a lot of mysteries involved. So uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much uh, for the invitation. It's uh, very impressive to see um, the building and everything that's going on uh, here. And it's uh, named after Buchanan. And it's named after uh, James Buchanan, uh, James McGill Buchanan. Um, I'm delighted to be a part of this panel. Um, I've been following Brock's work for uh, quite a while now. and. The book itself is not the culmination, because I don't think he's done working uh, on this or, or other topics, uh, but it, it's a wonderful collection of insights gained over a career of deep institutional context-dependent empirical research. And in that way, I think it's really an outstanding uh, and commendable work. I think there, there are maybe four major contributions uh, that, that I see from the book. The first is that um, it is a, a comprehensive and definitive account of an important context of stateless commerce. Um, it's, it's the definitive and best empirical discussion of those things. And the second is that in addition to explaining how those institutions operate and why they persist, uh, an important theoretical advance here is explaining not just how it works, but why it changes, why the institutional change happens. So not just its persistence, but its uh, later decline. And I think that's something that past work um, hasn't, hasn't been able to grapple with. And that's, uh, uh, you're able to do that through your deep empirical knowledge and this new institutional framework, I think. It's, it's, you're well poised to do that. And the book is very interesting in that way. It's also not just about diamond trade. Um, it, it's in one sense, um, much broader than that. It's not just about 47th Street. It's about the history of this industry. It's about a long supply chain, the market structure at each step along the way, and ways in which you, know, you don't romanticize it. The, the concern of cartelization is very real, and you engage with that in a way that I thought uh, was very enlightening. Um, the book also uh, is not just about the diamond trade in that it's discussing, based on an earlier article, a more general theory of stateless governance. And you draw a very useful distinction between work on shadow of the state and order without law. And maybe that's 
obvious to everyone, but I hadn't sort of thought of that dichotomy and that way to frame the literature. And it's, it's a productive and useful one. Um, oh yeah, I have got slides here. So this is, most of the slides are uh, criticisms, but this is the nice one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, finally, um, the fourth, I think, major contribution of this book is just as an example of how to study institutions. And it requires drawing on a lot of different types of evidentiary sources, filtering those through a theoretical framework, and sort of being cognizant and responsive to what you're observing there. And so it, it, on every page, it feels very even-handed and careful in, in the empirical work. Um, <clears throat> so I have a few uh, questions just to raise for, for, conver for conversation. Uh, the first is the conceptual question and its implications. So is this really a stateless commerce? Everyone involved here has state-based protection of their property. The association is presumably incorporated and protected by state-based legal institutions. And the religious communities from which many of these people come are clearly well within the realm of state-based um, governance. And so on the margin, you're showing that statelessness works in a particular way. But that's on a foundation of a vast amount of effective state-based institutions. The quibble is maybe that's not the best term to describe it, but the important point, I think, is when you get to the development policy. Because the countries that we, this may have lessons for don't have that framework. They're starting from a place not just where the exchange may or may not be self-enforcing, but maybe nobody's protecting their property rights in the first place. Um, so we might think about how well, or what, what, how well does the theory travel, or how well does, does its lessons travel? Um, the second uh, issue that came to mind was in thinking about the exercise and descriptive inference in trying to tell us from a few pieces of, of information, from pieces of evidence, a, a broader story. And like I said, I was very persuaded by it, uh, but I also had a few questions. So it would have been nice if there was some more sense, and maybe you can elaborate here, about sort of what is the magnitude of successes and failures in this context of trading. So we talk about it as being successful, sort of compared to what? Um, compared to state-based legal institutions, compared to other settings that are stateless commerce. Um, you note quite naturally that there were problems that did arise, but it's not entirely clear how often they arose. What percent of agents or transactions ended in these adjudication procedures? And is this, is, so, in, so in a sense, I'm asking, does this show that some trade can exist or that it's actually very effective? Uh, the second issue on um, understanding sort of the descriptive inference would it be just maybe if you could speak about what was the method that you used, in particular the mechanisms of governance. So when you go and look at, uh, I think it's chapter three or four, What's that, where's that evidence coming from? It's a little bit um, lacking in transparency. Who did you talk to, when, for how long, about what? Did you have a sampling strategy that allows us to sort of believe that the general point you're making um, isn't driven by sort of some bias in who you spoke with? And in particular, I was curious if, if you spoke only to those people who were 
participating in this industry, that gives rise to the concern that you simply did not have access to all those people who found it to be a failure or who were disgruntled with the process. So, you know, were you sampling on the dependent variable? And I'd be curious to sort of know a bit more uh, about that. I thought it might have maybe like a, a few page appendix just sort of laying out your research method um, would, would have shed some light on that. Um, in terms of sort of understanding um, the argument, the causal argument that you're making in the project, um, and you, you, you've raised the issue here today, and so I'm going to sort of confess my ignorance that I wasn't perfectly sure about something. Uh, so it's probably sort of an easy uh, point. Uh, but early in the book, uh, you have this quote. It says, and just as law enforcement cannot return stolen diamonds to their original owner, it cannot return diamonds bought on credit. Uh, this is a critical premise of the book, which is what caught my eye. It's important. And you write, modern courts and state-sponsored law enforcement, which we rely on to secure contract and property rights, can do virtually nothing to secure a diamond executory contract. Um, you said that here today, and I, I'm, I just am not quite sure why that is the case. And my concern is in part that the way the diamond trade is organized today, they can't, but that doesn't mean that it's the diamond and the characteristics of the diamond that require that. So you note that there's a high value to volume, and so someone could have a diamond and, and take it and leave. Um, if there was an escrow account or if there was uh, a corporation's financial standings there, how would that not overcome that concern? It might be as in past cases that courts don't have the expertise and the information that's required, maybe too difficult to collect or understand the nature of the exchange. But if that's the case, it seems that one of these shadow of the law style adjudication processes could fill that gap or inability through state-based governance institutions. Um, so it, the, I guess the question is, is it that diamonds in general simply can't be governed through state-based legal institutions or the way that the current diamond trade is practiced means that it cannot be? And I, I almost wonder if it's the latter, given the fact that the decline of the diamond trade today and the rise of vertical integrated uh, institutions now are operating, it seems to suggest that it's not it's not inevitable or impossible for states uh, to govern the diamond trade. <clears throat> the, the final point is to sort of raise an alternative hypothesis associated with, with, uh, with that issue, um, which is that your argument seems to be that um, this is an imperfect but very efficient way of organizing the trade. Um, Again, I like the fact that you raise the issue of cartelization and the inability to sort of have innovation within an industry. I think that's fascinating. I guess I'd be interested in your thoughts on an alternative explanation. And so if you think of the work of Yale political scientist James Scott, in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed, he describes the ways in which people of Southeast Asia structure uh, their lives to avoid state surveillance and control. Uh, it, it, their social structures, provision of necessities, other cultural practices are created to avoid being grasped and governed by the state. And so I wonder if an alternative argument is not that states can't govern diamonds, therefore it's stateless commerce, but if there's stateless commerce because they seek not to be governed by the state to avoid taxation, regulation, 
and disruption of cartelistic behaviors. And in that world, um, it's still fascinating to see the commerce that's existing that's statelessly, but the welfare <coughs> or the, the implications for that, and whether it's desirable or not, I think is, is more debatable. Um, I think this is a wonderful book. I'm going to assign it uh, in my class on extra legal governance. Um, and I think that um, this is a definitive account of the diamond trade. And congratulations on, on a wonderful product. I'm going to pretend that David did not suggest that the organization is efficient at the end there. But maybe we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, I want to start simply by, you know, again, thanking you, Barack, for what I think is an outstanding contribution to our understanding of private governance. Barack was far too humble in, in outlining and describing his contributions. Um, I think that they're wonderful. The book is full of them. Uh, and congratulations on, on Stateless Commerce. I, it's a truly wonderful book. Um, as most of you know me, know that I don't throw around compliments very lightly. So I hope that you, you take that as, a, as sincerely as I mean it. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I would go further. I would say, you know, to my mind, the book is actually a model of the kind of scholarship that we all should aspire to, especially those of us who have an abiding concern for the questions of self-governance. The book is, in my mind, built on what I consider to be the sort of the three pillars of, of excellent or potentially excellent scholarship. Um, the first is that it is price theoretic. Incentives and constraints are the central tools of Barack's analysis. The second is that stateless commerce is institutional. It considers both how institutions shape institutions and constraints and also are shaped by institutions and constraints. And that is central to its analysis. And the third pillar is that Barack's book is empirical, by which I mean both that it develops its insights with reference to and with an eye to understanding actual organizations and institutions that we observe in the world. And in turn, those insights are then confronted with facts, with data from the world. Uh, both contemporary and historical. You do those three things, um, and you're on your way to doing something great. And I think that the art of blending them properly is an underappreciated one. And it's one that Barack has succeeded in beautifully. Um, as I say, I, I think it's, it's just a, a, an absolutely excellent book in this regard. And the book illustrates, reminded me of why it is that Barack is one of my favorite scholars. And if you haven't read the book already, I'm sure that after reading it, he's going to be one of your favorite scholars, too. Um, one, one quick warning before reading, though, a little personal story, maybe a complaint. So at the beginning of the book, there's this excellent and fascinating discussion of the history of De Beers, the De Beers monopoly. Um, and in particular, this history of how it is that the idea that a diamond is forever, you know, the idea that it's a, it's a evidence of, of uh, true love for its recipient is not actually true. In fact, it's just the result of a crafty and successful marketing campaign on, on the part of De Beers. So it was one of my favorite parts of the book. It comes right at the beginning. So I was up 
smoking, of course, and reading it one night. And I was really excited. I immediately ran downstairs to Anya, my wife. And I said to Anya, I said, listen, we've been duped. The reason you like diamonds so much and the reason that I feel compelled to give them to you is not that diamonds are forever. It's because of the beers. Uh, this really happened. I, re I really said this to her. Um, I said, you know, it turns out. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So fair warning. Uh, you know, I, I said, it turns out diamonds aren't any more forever than, you know, Cheerios. Cheerios are a hell of a lot less expensive. So henceforward, we're substituting out gifts of diamonds with this gifts of Cheerios, or maybe just a hearty pat on the back. Um, the result was unpleasant, and I should probably, you know, blame myself, but I don't. I blame De Beers and Barack. So, <laughs> so there's that there. Um, okay, so there are a lot of, of really fat, I know I'm walking away from the microphone, I hope that's okay anyway. I just, I can't stand behind things. For <laughs> a lot of really fascinating aspects of the book. And, uh, but among the most, especially, I would say, thought-provoking for me was, a was something to which Barack's video, by the way, that's amazing that your 12-year-old daughter made that. I think it's awesome, an awesome video. Testament to her talent. No surprise. Apple tree, all that. Um, she refers to, at the end there, troubles of the, of the private governance system that the diamond dealers use. And, and David referred to the decline. And I think also that is one of the most fascinating parts of the book. And it's the part that I, I want to sort of focus my attention on uh, in my comments here. Um, and the basic question that I, that I want to ask is, is the so-called breakdown of the private governance system of the diamond dealers, the deterioration of their private system of cooperation, taking that at face value, is that in fact, as I think Barack would construe it, or most people would construe it, a bug of private governance? Or could it be possible that it might actually be a feature of their private governance system? And on the surface, I think that seems like a probably strikes you as a stupid question. Um, and I'm going to talk about in a little bit why I think it's not so stupid of a question. But I want to motivate it by asking you to just think about, in general, how hard it is, in fact, even for social scientists who know a lot about the various subject matters that they're studying, to distinguish bugs from features. Has anybody ever heard of the Whirlgig beetle? Any fishermen in here? Whirlgig, so it's little, little bugs, right, that are up, float on the surface of water. Fish go after them. And what, one of the things, oh, okay. One of the things, this is weird, but one of the things <laughs> that they do is they, they have this proclivity to congregate in large groups. And this posed a, a Darwinian puzzle for evolutionary biologists for a long time. Because it turns out that the larger the group of the world gig beetle, the greater the frequency with which the group of the world gig beetle is attacked. Seems to go against what we would suggest in terms of selection for fitness. It seemed like it was a bug of the bug's DNA programming. But upon further inspection, decades after studying it, investigating the Darwinian puzzle, what they actually found out was that although larger groups of world gig beetles are attacked with higher frequency than smaller groups, the frequency of attack per beetle actually falls, which explains why they congregate in large groups. Seemed like a bug on the surface, but in fact it turns out that it was advancing selection, fitness for the species overall. If you're arguing with capitalism about some, uh, with somebody, Right? One of the things that probably you've encountered is that they will point to competition as a bug of the capitalist system. 
There's this trip, why do you need 300, you know, producers of tennis shoes? It's redundant and wasteful. You should just have one producer of tennis shoes, they could specialize, we can eliminate all the redundancy, save all the resources. That makes sense on the surface, but of course as an economist, someone who understands how markets work, we would say, no, actually what looks like a bug to you, non-economist, is actually a feature of the system. We recognize desirable properties of the fact that there are 300 shoe producers. Competition is a good thing. Many other examples could be adduced. Uh, in fact, I'll share with you very quickly just one very, very brief one. My, when I came home from college one year uh, for my dad's birthday, my dad was a, is a big pipe smoker, cigar smoker. He has a, a lot of pipes, big pipe collection. I came home for his birthday, and my little sister, who was about 13 at the time, had this gift. We were all sitting around the, the kitchen table, and she was, you know, handed it to my dad. And he, he unwrapped it. And when he did, we all gasped. And the reason is that my little sister, 13 at the time, unwittingly had given, gifted my father a crack pipe. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. So he opens this thing. It's a long, clear glass tube with a perfectly spherical glass ball on the end and this tiny little opening for the bowl. And she says to him, I thought it was such a neat addition to, you know, so different from your other pipes. But, you know, the only problem is, she lamented, is that the, the bowl was so small, and so she thought it would be very hard for him to get the tobacco in, which is, of course, correct. She identified it as a bug of the pipe. In fact, for its intended purpose, crack rocks or whatever the hell you smoke in this thing. <laughs> Presumably, that's a feature. Anyway, so I, just, I was thinking about that. Okay, bugs of me, but back to diamonds, back to diamonds. So, Barack shows us that cooperation in the diamond dealing industry is supported by the discipline of continuous dealings. So the diamond dealers use the threat of boycott against those who cheat. And if there's common knowledge about the other members of the network's trading histories, whether or not they've cheated or cooperated in the past, and if they have sufficiently uh, low discount rates, if they have long time horizons, then the threat of boycott will depress the one-shot payoff of cheating below the present discounted value of remaining a member in good standing in the network, which will induce cooperation. <coughs> and the cool thing about the, the diamond network is that there's this thing, the New York Diamond Dealers Club, the DDC, that actually ensures that the two conditions to which I just referred are in fact met for the diamond, uh, in the case of the, of the, of the diamond network. So in the first case, the DDC provides arbitration services, and it facilitates information and communication by essentially notifying the network members of the outcomes of the arbitration uh, adjudication, as well as you know, information about if somebody's in default of pain and so on, satisfying common knowledge. And then the second way in which it does so is that the diamond dealing business is a family business. So these guys have kids, and these kids are people to whom they hope to bequeath their good standing in the network after they retire or die. That gives them long discount rates. Um, so together we get, with, we combine those with the threat of boycott, and we get cooperation. To the decline, however. So Barack also explains, and David referred to this as well, around 2000, I think, um, the situation changed and we observe a deterioration in the private governance system. Cheating begins to rise. It's somewhat unclear how much it rises exactly, but it's on the rise. We know that relative to what it was before. And we start to see exit from the industry. Not only are network members exiting the industry, but they're now, instead of encouraging their kids to be part of the network, discouraging their kids from becoming part of the network, directing them to alternative employments. So Barack basically shows that 
the, the cause of this decline, of this deterioration in the private governance system is that there were important industry changes that occurred circa 2000. De Beers lost its monopoly just a few years prior. And um, its response to that loss was to enter the retail market directly. That's one important industry change. The same time, you get the rise of internet diamond dealing, basically diamond retailing. Second important industry change. Third one is that there's an actual increase in the supply of inter diamond intermediaries coming from, actually this had begun I think several decades prior, but at this point is sort of building uh, from India in particular. Each of those industry changes has the same important effect, which is that it reduces the value of the economic activity that diamond dealers, that intermediaries are engaged in by obviating their activity to a greater and greater extent. Well, if you do that, you reduce the present discounted value of being a dealer in the first place, which means that in response you observe more cheating. The system starts to break down. And, and after there's more cheating, there's exit. Okay. So how do we evaluate that deterioration? That's the question that I want to think about. And I see two kinds of ways of doing so. So the way I think a sane person would evaluate the deterioration is by seeing it as reflecting, as I mentioned before, bugs of the system of private governance. as an undesirable thing. After all, cheating is undesirable, and more of it is now occurring. So how can this not be an undesirable situation? But then it kept nagging at me, you know, there's this, this other way, this less way that a less sane person might evaluate the breakdown. Um, and it, it's the way I, th I think I might be partial to, but maybe, you know, less sane, you can't really trust it. So with that in mind, but I'm going I'm to kind of articulate it here a little bit. Um, you know, could it be that given the industry changes that Barack identifies, it's a crucial caveat, given those industry changes, that the rise of cheating, a weakening of private property protection, an exit from the diamond dealing industry is in fact exactly what we would want to have happen. Um, and that's what I want to talk about now. So I think that there are two typical presumptions that most people come with to the table when, they, when it comes to thinking about private property protection or cheating in particular. Right? And the first is that the socially optimal level of cheating is zero. And the second is that the social, socially optimal level of cheating is invariant to circumstance. I think that's the way the most people think about it. And I get why they think about it that way. The difficulty is that in the presence of scarcity, both of those presumptions are mistaken. Uh, and it turns out, I think, in, in kind of really important ways. It takes resources to prevent cheating, to protect property rights. Arbitration, using the diamond example, for instance. Arbitration is costly, especially correct or just arbitration, rather than, say, corrupt arbitration. It's costly. Uh, boycott is costly. Shunning people is costly. Collecting and disseminating information about the history of traders is costly. Keeping your kids in the industry, especially when maybe they have higher valued uses elsewhere, is costly. Well, those are all costs in the diamond case of preventing cheating or protecting private property rights. There are a few, I think, very simple, but again, really important implications that derive from that simple observation of scarcity in this context. Uh, and that is that, first, the socially optimal level of cheating is not zero. 
In fact, it must be positive. Uh, and second, that the socially optimal level of cheating varies negatively with the value of protecting property rights. In other words, when the value of preventing cheating in some economic activity falls relative to the value of the resources used to prevent the cheating, it's socially optimal for cheating in that activity to rise. Weakening private property rights in that case is desirable. Corollary of that simple observation, again, implication from scarcity, is that if the reason that the value of preventing cheating in some economic activity has fallen is because the value of the economic activity being protected itself has fallen, then it is also socially optimal to have less of the activity in question. A contraction of the industry in question is desirable. In the limit, if the value of the economic activity in question falls sufficiently, then zero private property protection and zero of the activity in question is in fact socially optimal, right? Under such circumstances, the ability of a governance system, which is the thing that determines the degree of private property protection, that determines the amount of cheating, the ability of the governance system to self-destruct, to endogenously implode, as it were, is a feature, not a bug. It's exactly what we would want to have happen. If it doesn't happen, we in fact end up in a worse state of the world, where resources are now being used to protect an economic activity that is worth less than the resources being used to protect it. And furthermore, by artificially creating stronger property rights for that activity than in fact should be there, we are artificially increasing the rate of return to that activity, which prevents the deployment or the reallocation of the resources in that activity in question to those areas where we know it now has higher value. Okay, so self-destruction under that, under that situation is a feature, I think, not a bug. So what happens if we return now to the question of what about in the context of the diamond dealer's private governance system? What, what should we make of their rise in cheating, their weakening of private property protection, exit from that particular network? I think the logic that I just pointed to suggests that it's at least reasonable to think that rather than reflecting some pathology of private governance, it's in fact a feature of the private governance system that under such circumstances it would unravel. I'm going to return to that in one second. So I think, you know, a natural way of objecting or thinking about objections to what I was just saying would be to point out that what I just described is, is optimal self-destruction in a world in which the value of the economic activity in question has like plunged super low. It doesn't have to become worthless, by the way. It just has to plunge substantially. And you might say, look, that doesn't fit the diamond case because while it's true that the value through via obviated intermediaries of being an intermediary, being a diamond dealer, fell substantially because of these industry changes that Barack identifies. While it's true that that, that value fell significantly, uh, it didn't fall all the way to zero. Maybe it didn't fall, fall, enough, fall far enough. And therefore, breakdown would be suboptimal. So if we're observing breakdown, 
that would be a bug of the system, not a feature. It'd be an overreaction, so to speak, using the logic that I mentioned a moment ago, which I think is right. But I would respond to that by saying the system, in fact, has not totally self-destructed. Uh, self we don't have total breakdown. Property rights are weaker than they were before the industry changes, but they're not zero. We've got more cheating than we had before the industry changes, but we don't have rampant cheating. And it's true we've had some contraction of the industry relative to before the industry changes, but the industry still exists. There appears to be actually quite a large number of these guys still, diamond dealers. Mm -hmm. Then the question comes up, well, okay, so, but maybe the system is on the path to unraveling. It's on the path to this breakdown. And this is the kind of standard, this is like the, like the, uh, the great institutional cycle hypothesis, which I gotta be honest, I, you know, as you can probably guess, I find I have a lot of problems with the institutional cycle hypothesis. We, we, won't, we don't have to get into that right in a second. But, but the idea is sort of that now that we're on the road to, in this one application, in this context, is that now we're on the road to eroding private property protection, the system has to self-destruct. You know, it just, it's like that's how it goes, basically. Um, and what I want to say is that I don't, you know, I don't think we have enough information yet to know whether or not we're on the path to total deterioration. But I would suggest that basic price theoretic reasoning along the lines that I was just suggesting would imply that we're only on the way to unraveling if, in fact, unraveling would be socially optimal. Um, and why do I say that? Well, after the value, value of, the e of the economic activity in question, here being a di diamond intermediary, after it falls, who are the guys who engage in cheating? Well, they're the guys who had the lowest present discounted value of being diamond dealers prior to the fall. They're the marginal guys, right? So after the, after the fall, these are also the guys who will find alternative economic employments most profitable relative to being in the network. That's why one of the reasons why they're willing to cheat. That produces a very strong tendency in the system, which is for after the fall in the value of economic activity, their present discounted value goes down, they cheat, and then there should be a strong tendency for them to exit, as opposed to cheat, return, play with fire, and try my hand at cheating repeatedly. Because the value of the alternative, again, is rising. So once these guys do that, well, who's left in the system? All the inframarginal guys, the guys for whom the present discounted value of remaining a member in the network exceeds the one-shot paying of cheating, even at the now lower economic activity price at the suppressed PDV value. Those are the guys for whom cooperation is profitable. So as long as the price, as long as the value of the activity in question doesn't continue to fall, cooperation will be sustained. There's no necessary need for unravel. There's no reason to think it would. You're going to get a new equilibrium, but that equilibrium is going to just involve a contracted diamond dealer industry, which is now cooperating at previous levels. In other words, the efficient or optimal response. Is that necessarily going to be the outcome? No, because the, the other thing that could happen is that the value, say the internet keeps growing, the supply of intermediaries keeps growing, more retail expansion. We, we get even lower and lower uh, value of intermediaries because cutting out the middleman becomes more and more profitable because of these alternatives, right? In that world, the value of being a diamond dealer is going to continue to decline. It's going to approach zero. 
And as it approaches that limit case, we're back in the world that I mentioned theoretically before, where in fact the optimal thing is total unraveling. When, if the price falls sufficiently low, then using the logic that I just mentioned a moment ago, you basically end up hacking out of the group guys of higher and higher present discounted value until there's none left, at which point you've got the end of the industry, complete breakdown, total deterioration, and complete contraction of the activity. But again, if we observe that, theoretically, the only case in which we would observe it is the case in which we would want to observe it. Compare that now, and I'll stop here, but compare that now to an alternative governance system that didn't have in this built-in feature of, of weakening property rights when it became efficient to do so, allowing more cheating when it became efficient to do so, encouraging exit when it became efficient to do so. You might think that the state system looks kind of like that. It doesn't have the ability to endogenously respond. That would be not a feature of the state system, but a bug. But as I say, these are sort of just the musings of an insane person, so you should probably discount them. What I want to do is to simply thank you again, Barack, for a wonderful, wonderful book, wonderful contribution. That's it. Thank you. I'll just take a couple, yeah, a couple minutes. Um, so, thank you both very much. Really, really smart stuff. Um, and I hope this is a conversation that we continue through many other pieces of work by you and by me, and we can continue this conversation going on. Um, uh, maybe I'll emphasize, I'll, I'll focus on two things um, that I think addresses comments that both David and Pete made. Um, one is. Uh, the way David put it is, how do, we, yeah, how do we measure success? And how do we measure success in particular um, if we see that there, in fact, conceivably are other ways we can enforce the diamond sale, the diamond credit sale? Um, so this, the answer to this question, I think, gets to some of the core efficiencies of the arrangement that the diamond dealers have come up with. And I think it's illustrative. And I think it actually is, um, is, is a key insight, uh, a key feature, you might say, of institutional economics. There are lots of ways you can engineer a diamond sale. It could be simultaneous, just cash for, cash for stones. Um, it could be through a credit sale where you sign a contract. Uh, it could be through the informal mechanism of reputation, re reputation enforcement, which is what the diamond industry is focused on. Um, or it could be through vertical integration, which, uh, which David pointed out is actually something that's happening increasingly now. There are lots of different ways to try to secure that credit sale. Each one has certain faults. And Squarely with institutional economics, what you're doing is you're looking at the comparative institutional efficiencies of each different mechanism. The reason that reputation-based exchange is efficient is really important and interesting. Um, simultaneous exchange, the real problem there is that uh, diamonds are really expensive. There is a very significant capacity constraint if you are a small individual, and therefore credit sales are wildly more valuable. To the degree that you can get some kind of financial backing, um, like a, a credit sale, like escrow, uh, some kind of credit card, some kind of letter of credit, you are comparing 
the risks that are assessed by the bank, the third party versus the community, the person who actually is extending the credit. Um, and for that reason, if you can get credit from the individual with whom you do business regularly, that is a, that is a person who is extending credit more, more intelligently. You could also do vertical integration, which you might say is one mechanism of actually having both a reliable self-insured transaction and having financing. Why is it that maybe uh, when De Beers, instead of De Beers selling to people on credit or instead of a dealer selling to people on credit, maybe the dealer should actually just take the stone, turn it into jewelry, and sell it a retail. Comparing the efficiencies of reputation-based mechanism with vertical integration, I think, is really key in understanding why the diamond dealers have done what they've done. Um, the real value in creating a diamond sale, the real value in creating the real What's really operational and creating value in the diamond distribution mechanism is all about finding the right buyer for the right stone. It's all about making sure you have this individual stone and you want to find a buyer who will pay much more than the person next to you. And that is all about gathering market information and synthesizing market information. And this is really where Hayek comes in. This is Hayek. This is spontaneous governance. This is about coming up with a mechanism of individuals through market market features, market mechanisms that synthesizes market information, disseminates it quickly, and creates value. This is a core Hayekian idea, and it's why the credit sale through reputational mechanism is superior to the alternatives. Not to say that what we have is the hypothetical ideal, but it is superior to these other mechanisms. It's a key feature in understanding why we have why, why, why 47th Street not only looks so different from everything else, but frankly, why it looks the way it does. Why you see the frenzy of, of, of dealers running around the street. That's where all the pictures came in. These are all people who are negotiating sales in the street. Um, you see market mechanisms and trading for information at work right there. So, um, so when we think about those core efficiencies, then we also recognize that another thing at work is the, the reliance on sustained cooperation, the, 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 the necessary prospect of future trade that encourages compliance at when t equals zero. This is what reputation mechanisms are all about. Um, and both David and Pete remarked, and maybe it really is a, 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 it's a, it's a feature of the book, not a bug, a bug of the book. The last chapter talks about how everything that we've described and all of its merits really are kind of coming undone. And how do we understand that? Um, in response to David's question, and by the way, I, you know, there are a number of things that were said that I found incredibly complimentary. Um, the, the, the most complimentary of, of all the comments is that this is a project that is very much grounded in empirics, and it's not a romanticized project. It's wildly fascinating, but there are, I, I, we are not, I, I'm not promoting something that the whole world should emulate. This is something that is necessary to understand the way it's being presented to us. And there necessarily are a lot of questions when, raised when what we see is changing, and you might say is unraveling. Um, and maybe I'll just close with this idea. Is it a feature or is it a bug? 
I think it's a feature, but not in the way that Pete described it. I don't think it's a feature where we see the value of the activity changing in relation to the value of protecting property rights. I see that this is an institutional story. In the best of all worlds, we have a mechanism of spontaneous governance with reputation mechanisms uh, and efficient distribution. Part of the institutional life cycle story, which Pete says he doesn't like, maybe I can convince him to like it, um, is that the institutions change. They have trajectories. Uh, and what we see in the diamond sector, and this is, I think, very much related to what David was saying is also, um, we don't see just a change in the payoffs, but we see a change in the power structure. The diamond industry, you might say, is becoming naturally corrupt. This is the cartel features that David was identifying as a really important part of the story. Um, in the best ideal world, you have this large-scale system of exchange where essentially strangers can do business with each other. They can do business with each other because, because they know that the Diamond uh, Dealers Club is going to tell everybody of all bad behavior. And you've, ach you've achieved, you might say, the benefits of both the state and the benefits of spontaneous governance. You have um, a rapidly uh, evolving, a rapidly spontaneous and responsive gov uh, governance structure where transactions are made with value, but you also have the efficiencies of scale. Um, and you also have, and you have the efficiencies, you might say, of even impersonal exchange. But a natural progression of these institutions is that there is a power structure, and the power structure becomes entrenched, and the power structure incentives are not aligned with these social incentives. Um, and all of these, all these, all these features, which are, you know, I guess problematic. They're detriments, but they are part of the structure. They come out when the payments start to change. They come out when. Um, when, uh, when the, the market gets hit with exogenous shocks. I do tell a story that I try to be dispassionate about that's not always predictive, that what's happened in 2000, it started in the 90s, started in 2000, especially 2005, really started to unravel this. It's an exogenous story, things that are outside the, outside the diamonds, things that are beyond the diamond dealer's control started to change the payoffs of cooperation. But I could have made a more theory-driven, a more categorical argument, which is that um, when you have, uh, individuals who have built an infrastructure to sustain spontaneous exchange, you also create essentially a cartel. And you create a power structure that is impossibly aligned um, with the marginal members. So I think that what we're seeing here is a generalizable story about private governance. And maybe what we see as the rise and fall of certain private governances and maybe this temporary replacement with state uh, institutions or vertical integration is another opportunity for more creative organizational forms to come up with alternative and more efficient mechanisms um, that can reduce the rents that are inherent with state-based exchange. So this is a, a wildly fascinating conversation that, that the two of you have started. Um, and I do think that we are, we, if we push hard, maybe even beyond the facts we have, maybe we can come up with some more comprehensive theories. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. 
We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.